We are reading from Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, thanks, Harry, for reading those verses to us. If we've not met, my name is Dan, and I have the joy of uh, teaching and preaching uh, to us this morning. And we are going to look through Luke 36 to 50. And uh, this is part of a series of preachers that we're doing where we're taking Luke's gospel and we're picking out all the meals that he writes about. And these meals aren't just, uh, they're not just like kind of Instagram pictures of your breakfast that you might have sent out, but these are events, these are significant, and Luke is, uh, is putting them in, uh, into, the, uh, into the gospel on purpose because he wants to teach us something about Jesus every time. And this is kind of the spoiler at the beginning, but it won't come as a surprise to you that Jesus in this passage is showing that he's the one who's able to forgive sins today. Now, if this is your first or second time joining us on the live stream, you're, you're especially welcome. Um, and maybe you're, you've been watching and you're still exploring the claims and the teachings of Christianity. What you might have uh, found for you, or you might have noticed for others, that there's often kind of two reactions to, uh, to, to Jesus. And the first reaction can be, uh, actually, I'm doing okay. 
I, I don't want God. And that's, uh, you know, I'm doing fine. Life's good. Why would I need God? The other reaction might be, actually, I'm not doing okay, but God wouldn't really want me. Actually, my life is a mess. And in this story, we kind of see the two opposites, and we're going to dig into just how opposite they are and how their reactions kind of show what's going on in their hearts today. The bottom line is this meal is very awkward. Like, the tension would have been palpable. And I, I've had a few awkward meal situations. I remember the, you know, going to a girlfriend's house and meeting her parents for the first time over a meal. That is an awkward situation, you know. Sometimes I was so nervous I might drop the cutlery or, you know, knock over the glass and it's just embarrassing. Another awkward meal situation was um, the accountant department Christmas party. Because actually, well, we don't, as accountants, we don't really know how to party, but we reassure ourselves that it can't be as bad as the actuary's Christmas party, and so we get through it. Another awkward meal situation is when the food actually is missing a vital ingredient. Perhaps it's salt or something else, but the host is so nice, you just can't say anything. This meal is way more awkward than any of those situations. And uh, a couple of things you need to know is that because in the verses we heard that Jesus was reclining, it means that it's speaking of uh, a banquet or a special occasion, possibly a Sabbath meal. And also in Middle Eastern culture, it was common for on these special occasions to have the door open to allow people to come in. They could come and sit and listen to the conversation if they wanted to. Or if you were poor and needy, you'd be allowed to come and ask for some leftovers. So the door was open, people were allowed to come in. It wasn't unusual for this woman to be in the house. So we've got three characters in this story. We've got Simon the host, we've got this lady, the uninvited guest, and then we've got Jesus in the middle of it all. Let's look at Simon first of all, because actually by Middle Eastern standards, he's a pretty awful host. He should have known better. His status was that he was respected in society. He was a Pharisee, he was a homeowner, he was a meal thrower. Uh, he would have been a kind of an upright guy, maybe like a, a school principal, someone who knew people and people looked towards for, uh, for guidance maybe. He was respected in society, but his actions towards Jesus are none of the usual politenesses. He's ignoring all the common courtesies. In the Netherlands, I've realized that when you enter someone's house, or when they come to your house, you'll have a kind of list of common courtesies. You'll greet them. You might give them an elbow, uh, previously a handshake or a hug, possibly a kiss, to welcome them in. And then you'll uh, ask them if they want to take off their coat, if maybe they want to take off their shoes. Seems to be quite common here. And then, because in these corona times, you're invited to go and wash your hands, please. And none of these things are kind of afforded to Jesus in Simon's house, which would have been to have, to have been greeted. It would have been to have been offered water for his feet, because the Middle East is a very dusty place. So 
when you came in, you were aware that you were kind of stepping into a clean zone and it'd be common just to, you know, take off your sandals, give your feet a quick wash. If you were coming into a wealthy homeowner's place, then maybe a servant would have come and given you some water. The third thing was uh, the oil. Now, oil was actually used a little bit like soap. So it was used for many things in Middle Eastern culture. It was used for cooking, for cleaning, kind of for just freshening up, um, which would have been common as well when someone enters, you know, do you want to use the bathroom, freshen up? There's a bit of hand lotion or moisturizer. Simon doesn't offer any of this. Yet we heard in the passage that he calls Jesus teacher, which was uh, a title of regard. He should have been respecting Jesus and offering him some honor. This isn't just anyone coming in. So actually to do this, to ignore all these common courtesies, is actually more of an insult. In England, it'd be a bit like saying, you know, don't bother taking your coat off, you're not staying long. He's not making Jesus feel welcome at all. We don't know why Simon's doing this. He has invited Jesus to eat with him, but we don't know if Simon's heart is to want to be rude to him on purpose or if he's testing Jesus. We just don't know what's going on. But we do get some insights into his heart and his heart towards Jesus. And that's actually that Simon is totally judging Jesus. And Simon draws uh, three conclusions. He says uh, that Jesus should have known what kind of a woman was anointing him, conclusion number one. With that knowledge, he should then have stopped her touching him, conclusion number two. And the third one then is that because he didn't stop her, because he didn't recognize He cannot be a prophet and should not be acknowledged as one. So the host is not being hospitable, basic courtesy, and then he's being very judgmental. But this is what's going on inside him. Despite all this, Jesus sticks around in the meal. It's a cold start, but let's see what happens next. As we turn to the uninvited guest, to the woman, the woman who had actually been rejected by society. And again, we don't know why she was rejected. The text doesn't tell us why they called her a sinner. But it's clear that she was disregarded, that she'd have been judged, that she'd have been an outsider to society. And the fact that we're told uh, that Simon knew she was a sinner, everyone would have known that she was a sinner. They're calling her a sinner, which meant there was some kind of moral sin that she was doing regularly that would have meant that to come in contact with her, to have her touch you, in the Jewish tradition, you would have had to have kind of purified yourself afterwards. You'd have become ceremonially unclean from hanging out with such a person. So her status is that she's rejected by society. Her action towards Jesus is the antithesis of Simon's. She is overly hospitable, even over-familiar in the eyes of that society. She seems to say nothing, but her actions speak so loudly. So she approaches the table, and you can picture the scene. There would have been men reclining uh, at the table and food and lots of conversation going on, and then this lady approaches Jesus' feet. And I think there would have been a hush 
what is Jesus going to do? And then she begins to cry. And then she begins to let down her hair, which would have brought out a gasp from everyone. Because to let down your hair in front of a man who wasn't your husband would have been grounds for divorce. It was something that a lady would do on her wedding night. She would let down her hair. All the rest of the time, it would have been covered up. So this is shocking. She then begins to wipe her feet with his hair, which is, is kind of even more intimate, even more invasive into Jesus' personal space. Then she kisses his feet, which is a sign of deep uh, reverence and respect and actually culturally would have been better understood than wiping his feet with her hair. And then she anoints his feet with perfume or ointment, which would have cost so much more than kind of common household olive oil. Each stage would have taken time and the tension would have been building with every action. So this lady is over-hospitable. She's over-familiar, even inappropriate perhaps in the eyes of those watching. But Jesus receives it and he still stays. And we can see something of a heart towards Jesus is actually her actions are countering Simon's lack of hospitality. She's, she's making up for it, but she's going even further than she needed to. Her tears are an expression either of joy at the chance to honor Jesus or at the realization of her forgiveness. Maybe it's both. We know that she knew of her forgiveness already because she'd come prepared with the perfume. It wasn't normal to carry perfume around. And so she's coming to meet Jesus, to thank him, to worship him. And we can see her heart um, kind of flowing through her tears that she is uh, uh, expressing joy and relief and gratitude. The perfume is... Uh, way more generous than the, the host was to her. And this is not kind of a, just a, a bit of a, a serious pedicure, but this is then an act of worship, of devotion towards Jesus. Her heart is fully engaged. Her emotions are fully engaged in what she's doing. She would have known that she was a sinner in the eyes of society. She would have known that there was nothing she could have done to make herself not have this label. And so her heart, knowing its forgiveness, responds in love and gratitude. Gratitude is actually a, a better translation for the word love in this passage. So she's been rejected from society. Then she goes, she does some immodest, some over-familiar things, but her heart is coming from a place of, of being so warm towards Jesus. And you can see on the, the table the, the, how they're the opposites of each other. And understanding this scene is important to understanding how Jesus' reactions need to be understood. Because Jesus doesn't respond in the culturally expected manner. You know, in Simon's mind, Jesus should have asked her to back away when she approached. He should have said stop when she began to let down her hair. And when she touched him, Jesus should have pulled away in Simon's mind. And actually, that would have been the minds of most people watching. Even the disciples 
would have been shocked at Jesus allowing this to happen. We hear of another account where Jesus is found by the disciples talking with a woman. It's the, the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4, 27. And it records there that just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. So this is against the cultural norms of the time that Jesus would allow this. But Jesus shocks everyone. He permits it to carry on. And then Jesus tells the parable to help explain his reaction. And the parable was Luke 7, 41 to 42. A certain money lender had two debts. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? It's a very short parable, but Jesus is making some massive points. And this is really the big idea of the passage. Often in New Testament writing, you find that the biggest idea is right in the middle of the passage. It's put there on purpose. And we see two people with very different sized debts. One of 500 denarii, denarii, which would have been equal to about a year and a half or nearly two years wages. That's a lot of money. That's like a, a house mortgage, perhaps. And then there's a smaller debt 10 times smaller, of 50 denarii. So that's about two months' wages, which is still a fair sum of money. But neither debtor could repay. But both debts are cancelled. We don't know why they were cancelled, but they were cancelled. And to the listener, they would have understood that an unpaid debt is equal to unforgiven sin. It was kind of un, very uh, similar words and similar concepts. Unpaid debt equals unforgiven sin. And this is kind of the first big truth that Jesus is wanting to bring into this situation. That God is ready, he's willing to forgive our debt of sin. He's willing to forgive all the debts of sin, the big ones and the small ones, that God loves to act graciously and beyond everyone's expectation. He really wants Simon to get this truth. And Jesus is demonstrating this truth by receiving the woman's actions. Then the second big truth, which kind of comes out from the question, is that when forgiveness is received, love and gratitude flow. And Simon gets this. Jesus is kind of telling him that actually Simon's judgment is right on this occasion. You see, forgiveness is a big deal. Forgiveness is a big deal. It's never, ever deserved. You know, forgiveness only exists or can only exist when a wrong has been committed. You know, you don't forgive people who do you good things. So forgiveness only exists when there's a wrong. And therefore, forgiveness always costs. It always costs to let go of the wrong. There was something done. Maybe something done to you. Maybe you did, did something to someone else. And it costs you to let go of it, to say, I forgive you. You know, an unexpected gift. We came down to a table and there were some heart-shaped chocolates uh, that the kids pulled out from somewhere. And it was an unexpected gift this morning. And uh, we were very grateful. It was nice to have it. But I wasn't living my life thinking I need chocolates today. How much more then is a cancelled debt? You know, if someone was to call me and say, okay, we've cancelled your mortgage, 
that would, that would move me to tears, frankly. But you, you get the difference, that we can receive a gift. It elicits a positive reaction of gratefulness. How much more to have a debt cancelled? Because debt weighs heavy on us. It can be crippling. It's like a, a, a heavy burden and, and like sin. And then when forgiveness comes and it's lifted off, how much lighter does that feel? So after telling this parable, the conversation between Jesus and Simon continues. And this is really the plot twist. Jesus' response to Simon, because Simon has perceived, no, Jesus has perceived Simon's judginess. Despite Simon's conclusion that Jesus is a non-prophet, actually, he demonstrates that he is. Jesus helps to Simon to see that because this lady's been forgiven, she loves much, or she shows much gratitude. And this is the plot twist. Jesus begins to show Simon how he's insulted Jesus by omitting the common courtesies. And then he's implicitly pointing out Simon's lack of love his lack of gratitude towards his own forgiveness. Jesus is warning Simon to see that he has a debt as well and that it needed to be paid. All sin needs to be forgiven. He's trying to show Simon that actually he's a sinner too. So although everyone was aware of the woman's external sinfulness, only Jesus in the room was aware of Simon's internal sinfulness, his critical heart, his judgmental nature his kind of cold heart and Jesus begins to call it out because he's wanting Simon to respond to him he's wanting to help Simon Jesus is drawn towards helping people who are caught in sin whether they see it or not he knows that Jesus knows he's the only one who can help Simon was lacking an acknowledgement of his sin. He thought he was doing the right thing. He was perhaps self-righteous, and that had led to some spiritual ignorance. He was kind of minimizing his own sin in front of Jesus. And actually, I've realized that sometimes I can do the same thing. I think sometimes we can do the same thing. We look for ways to minimize our sin. Now, I've used this word a lot, and I, I know that preachers often use this word sin, and I kind of want to pause and just explain what I mean by sin. Maybe you thought it a bit like this. John G. Lake describes it. He says, men tell us in those days that sin is what you think it is. Well, it's not. Sin is what God thinks it is. You may think according to your own conscience, but God thinks according to his. And I think that's common today, even though this was written in the 1900s. Over 100 years ago, this was written, but I think today we still tend to think that sin is how we define it, and God says no. It's how I define it. So to sin is to miss God's standard as set out in the Bible. It's to fail or to fall short the, the images the Bible uses are like a, an arrow falling short of the target, it just doesn't quite make it, so it didn't hit it, or it'd be like taking a driving test 
And you make one small error, but you don't pass. Therefore, you failed. It didn't matter if you caused a collision on the way. You didn't pass. Or it's like having one small stain on a white shirt. It's tiny. It's less than a percent of the whole shirt, but you can't not see it. Sin is, is to be guilty, to have a guilty conscience before God. To sin is to have even the smallest moment of rebellion towards God, to think, no, I want to do this. I'm not going to do what God wants. So it's getting a bit heavy as we look at what sin is. But I want to just stay in this place a bit longer because we look for ways to reduce this heaviness. And uh, another quote, Charles Spurgeon kind of calls it out. He says, uh, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It's so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you're deceived. So actually we can live unaware, like Simon. We can live where our consciences have become dulled, where we've become desensitized to it. Other things we can do to minimize it, and I've got a long list I'm going to go through fast, but we can minimize or downplay it. You know, it's just not that bad. Everyone slips up like this, don't they? We can be in denial. You know, I didn't mean to. It wasn't in my heart. We can rationalize it. We can defend it. You know, the circumstances were against me. We can deflect it. That's what I'm prone to. Find someone else to blame instead of admitting it was my fault. We can fake it. We can hide it. Actually, we can end up feeling if people knew, how could they really accept me? So I don't know which of those Simon was doing. I know which ones I do. What about you? What about you? Which ways are you prone to minimizing sin sometimes? Because when we first cross the line of faith, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord, when we receive his forgiveness, the Holy Spirit in that moment is convicting us of our sin and we suddenly realize that our sin is what sent Jesus to the cross. He had to die for it. And all the excuses fade away as we understand Jesus' holiness and miraculously we're faced with the ugliness of our hearts but the good news that we can be forgiven sets us free from the despair we'd otherwise carry. Because Jesus is amazing. His forgiveness renews us from the inside out. And actually, as we grow in maturity, I find this chart really helpful because what should happen is that actually as we grow in maturity, our awareness, this is the, the bottom diagonal line, our, our awareness of our own sinfulness increases. But also what increases is an awareness of God's holiness. And so the cross gets bigger and bigger in front of us. As you mature, you know, you should become more aware of your sin. That doesn't mean that you're sinning more. You're just becoming more aware of it. We become more aware of his holiness. And therefore the cross becomes bigger and becomes an incredible point of worship for us. And this is kind of the big truth number three out of this passage is that we all need forgiveness. No one escapes the debt of sin that we owe to God, even a very, very small debt. 
John Bunyan says that one leak will sink a ship and one sin will destroy a sinner. And Simon has forgotten that he is a leaky ship. He's forgotten that maybe he had a very small leak, but it was still a leak. He was still a sinner. Jesus wants Simon to acknowledge this so that he can respond to Jesus, so that then Simon can respond in love and gratitude. And we're actually left hanging as to what Simon does. We don't know what happened with Simon's life, but you can be sure that he thought about this meal again and again. We see Jesus' response to a woman was actually revolutionary. That Jesus overlooks all that Simon sees in the woman. That Jesus sees the woman's gratitude and her faith. Jesus receives her worship and her love. Jesus accepts her despite knowing her past. Jesus affirms her forgiveness. He affirms her faith and then he sends her off in peace. It's incredible. This is the plot twist. And by doing this, the final big truth to bring out the passage is that Jesus is the only one who can forgive sins. And this would have been controversial for the hearers. This would have been revolutionary too. That Jesus is showing that he is God. In John 10.30, Jesus states, I and the Father are one. Jesus is not just an amazing, perceptive, wise, inclusive, loving man, but he is God. I want to conclude. What do we learn about the heart of mankind? Firstly, we learn that we all have a debt of sin to pay. We may be aware or unaware of our sin. The lady was very aware of it. Simon was unaware of it. You know, both moral law keepers and immoral law breakers are sinners and need forgiveness. We're not saved by our lack of bad deeds. We're saved by faith in Jesus. We, this is the second thing we learn, is that we have a capacity to receive forgiveness and it will lead to a response of love and gratefulness. And the more forgiveness we receive, the more love and gratefulness towards Jesus we will experience. It's not that we need to sin more to experience more forgiveness, but we can receive his forgiveness for whatever we have done. Jesus changes the metric. The metric isn't how much sin, it's how do we respond to him. One of the things we learn, there's many things we learn about Jesus in this passage. We learn that he's resilient, gentle, even in the face of insult. He values each heart equally. He shows no partiality, no favoritism. He's not bothered by any social awkwardnesses. He cares most about the state of our hearts. He loves lavish displays of worship. He's got the power to forgive sins, to respond and affirm people's faith, to send them off in peace. And at the cross, he pays for the debt of sin, sin that we owed. So what now? Are we sitting here feeling like our debt is like 500 denarii or 50 denarii? Or maybe we don't feel like we owe a debt of sin at all. How will we respond to Jesus? So will we respond to say, actually, I feel like I'm doing okay. I don't need God. I don't want God. Or are we going to respond and say, actually, I'm not doing okay. God wouldn't really want me. 
because like Simon who thought he was doing okay, some of us need to watch out for self-righteousness because it can lead to spiritual ignorance. As we, you know, it's like when we move from confidence in something to self-confidence, when we're proud about something we've done and it leads to pride in ourselves. This is how it kind of creeps in. We need to keep acknowledging our need for Jesus. A little heart test. When God thinks of you right now, what's the look on his face? When God thinks of you right now, what is the look on his face? And I think for many of us, we perhaps see a disappointed face or an angry face or an indifferent face. If only, you know, we can feel like If only we'd try a bit harder, God would be happy. We can end up imagining if we were better Christians, God would approve of us more fully. But this is exhausting. This is is joy draining and peace robbing. And it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the gospel truth is that if you've received Jesus Christ, then he loves you. He's deeply satisfied with you because of his son. Like the woman who knew she wasn't doing okay, she received forgiveness, she went to Jesus, Jesus affirms her and accepts her. She then responds with amazing gratefulness for her forgiveness. She uh, responds lavishly in her love by breaking the perfume, pouring out her dignity and generosity on Jesus. She's utterly devoted in her worship to him. I'd love for us to be a people whose worship is freed from self-awareness, filled with awareness or awesomeness of who Jesus is, what he's done, and the forgiveness of our sin. Let me pray for us quickly. Jesus, as we see something of your heart displayed in this story, God, I pray that it would have moved our own hearts as we see what it costs you to forgive us, I pray that love and gratitude would flow from all watching today. And I pray that as we live our lives this week, that would continue to happen, Father God. God, we love, we love that you say our sins that are forgiven are as far as the east is from the west. We don't need to live with our sin in front of us, but let us never forget the forgiveness that we've received from you. Let us never be judgmental or self-righteous. Let us always be loving and passionate and utterly devoted to you. Amen.